This is episode number seven with Charlotte Oberg. Welcome to the Life Optimized Show. My name is Dave Singh, and each week I bring you fascinating conversations with inspiring thought leaders from all around the world about what it really takes to optimize your business, leadership, and life. So I'd like to welcome Charlotte Oberg to the Life Optimized show. Uh, Lotta, welcome. It's really great to have you on the show. Uh, I've been very excited to have you on the show since before I even started recording the episodes uh, because we <laughs> we go back uh, a little while now and we've kind of known each other on and off and we've been friends, uh, developing our friendship uh, gradually, I would say, over a period of time. Yeah. But you're definitely one of the most fascinating people I know. Um, you are essentially a cross-cultural consultant or an um, an intercultural uh, cultural intelligence expert. I'm still figuring out if you if there's actually any one particular cultural related uh, label to stick uh, on you. I like all those. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure we'll reveal more um, throughout the show as well, and maybe we can come up with a couple of new ones. We certainly can. But you've uh, you've dedicated 15 years to responding to these questions like what does it take to be successful across cultures? Why is this important in our increasingly global village? Uh, how should we act to connect cross-culturally and what are the benefits of that as well yeah and you, i understand you're originally from sweden and uh, you, you moved here uh, in australia but you've worked you, uh, you've worked quite a bit around the world as well in um, in diplomatic capacities and in, yeah. um, in capacities where your expertise is used quite uh, diversely and i'd kind of like to uh, talk about your experiences and your expertise in the context of our conversation as it comes up so I do have uh, your bio naturally in front of me as well. And um, as I've told you before, it's it's a little bit overwhelming, if not intimidating. It's just so much that you've done and so much that you've accomplished in this space. Oh, that's and, so much, Dave. Oh, no, it's it's just, it's it's the fact. It's right there. And, um, and I've seen this before and it just blows me away every time. But the one thing that I wanted to ask you that I've never asked you before in relation to kind of kicking this off is how did you, how did you, sort of wake up one day and find yourself saying that, you know, oh, cultural intelligence is a space that I work in. Because I imagine you didn't go to, you know, university or college and say, I want to do a, a bachelor in um, uh, in being, becoming a cultural intelligence expert. No, you're quite right, because that didn't exist when I was that young. Hmm. Um, and while you can now study it, there's still no straight career path to becoming a cultural trainer, a cultural intelligence facilitator of sorts. But I did sort of wake up one day and fall straight into it. It was a little bit akin to falling in love, but in the career space. I was about 22, I was traveling the world, I was enjoying you know, all the different expressions of culture. And one day a friend of mine in Boston said, you know, we keep talking about cultural differences and, and how we're the same, but how we're different and how interesting that is. And actually, a friend of mine has just started up a company in this space. I said, really? There, there's a way to work with this stuff, not just talk about it all the time. And she said, yeah, apparently so. And it turns out this person, David Eaton is his name, he started up one of the first professional companies in this space. This is only 20 years ago. So it's a young field. So within minutes, we were on the phone to him. <coughs> within hours, I was in his office. And within that day, I knew what I wanted to do, which was very unusual for me because I'm a person that always looks into 
all the different possibilities, having a hard time choosing between them all, whether that is these countries or uh, you know flavors or whatever it might be. But for me, this was really clear. This was fascinating. Twenty years ago, it was fascinating to me, and today it's fascinating to me. I never stop learning, and this is partly what I love. I keep engaging with the world every day here in multicultural Australia. So, so it's not been a completely straight path, but from then on, I knew. Okay. Great. That's that's really inspiring. A lot of questions come out of that um, that, that are quite useful for me as well. What were you doing before that? Then I was a student and I was um, traveling the world with an organization called Up With People, which most Australians wouldn't have heard about. Mm -hmm. But they tour a lot in Europe and in the US. Uh, and it's one of those wonderful little programs for intercultural education in a way. It's about bringing people together, 150 people from 50 different countries, to sing and dance, which, you know, you don't have to be super talented to do, luckily, because I'm not. But really, the, the, real, the real job we have is to, to work with each other. Um, to understand each other. We stay with host families, so it is an educational program, but a very on-the-ground, hands-on one. So that really opened up my mind to cultural differences because I came from a middle-class city in Sweden, and I know, uh, Deb, that you've been to Sweden, and even yep. by the pronunciation of my name, I can tell how much you have picked up. <laughs> a little bit, speak. yeah. yeah. I tried. Perfect, <laughs> and you're very good. Thank you. Spot on, I'd say. But, um, you know, I had not been exposed to a lot of difference, and suddenly through this program, I was living it. I was, you know, in different homes <coughs> all the time, seeing the diversity within a community as well as, you know, across cultures of the world. So I visited 20 countries in one year, uh, doing lots of community work throughout, a bit of singing, a bit of dancing, to the best of my abilities, and I made friends with people who have lasted me a lifetime. So that, that sort of was the first, the precursor on why I could sit in Boston as a 22-year-old and have a chat with a friend who knew an interculturalist. Uh, but before that, I had a completely sort of normal Swedish upbringing, a few trips here and there, lots of Svensons and Andersons and Carlsons, which is sort of the <laughs> Swedish version of our Anglo, you know, Smiths, yeah. etc. And uh, yeah, really not exposed, not knowing much about the world. And then, you know, a door opened and I, I haven't been able to move back since. <laughs> wow, so it's, it sounds like it was partly quite serendipitous, and yeah. partly um, quite organic and uh, sort of a natural thing. It was, it was almost a blessing that, you know, you, yes. you stumbled upon this. I so, actually think about it that way as well, so thank you, yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I'm quite, uh, I, I think this is a good juncture to ask the sort of really big questions uh, for everyone listening. Yes. What is it exactly? What's cultural intelligence? Uh, what does it do? And really, I'm curious to know the person listening to this, uh, you know, they might be sitting on the train or driving the car to work, just living an everyday kind of life. Mm. Um, why should they care about it? How does it optimize their life? Great questions. So, as you said, I spent my life thinking about those things and, and learning about those things um, from the gurus in the field. I can say, first off, that cultural intelligence is one way that you can get your head around culture and understand how to manage it inside of yourself with others in interactions mm -hmm. and in your community at large. But most people are not quite sure what I mean when I say culture, and that's fair enough. If you Google that term, you get 5,000 definitions, and it can yeah. be anything from the beautiful expressions of cultures, the art, the music, the food, uh, to some you know, deep beliefs about fate and uh, you know, who's in charge in our lives. 
When I'm talking about culture, when people in my field talk about culture, we talk about the values that we are raised and rewarded by. And I know from many people in multicultural Australia who might be listening to this or from other parts of the world, mm -hmm. there are, you know, this is not just one set of rules. We grow up in pretty global societies already. But only when we're confronted by a very different culture do we usually realize for the first time how our culture has impacted us. One of the examples that I use in many of my trainings, which is something that most people can relate to, is, for example, eye contact. I bet you don't think about exactly how much eye contact you give in a particular situation. You're buying a coffee, for example. You know, how much eye contact should you give with this person that you're interacting with? That's something that we have put into our subconscious because we have been raised and rewarded how to do that. It's been modeled to us. Um, so when we grow up, our culture becomes something that we take for granted. We're in, it's inside of us, we're inside of it. Um, so what cultural intelligence can do is to show you that this particular <coughs> piece of interaction, eye contact being an example, it really differs across cultures. There's evidence <coughs> for it, and when you point it out to people, they go, you know what, that's really true. And then we can work on it from there to realize, what is culture anyway? How does it impact my daily life? And why would it matter? Just that question that you asked. Yeah. So, so it's, it's one of those things that I think is really interesting to people and when they hear it it's almost like watching a very very cool documentary but mm -hmm. there's still um, and I've been to your trainings as well and they're extremely fascinating and extremely um, extremely thought-provoking and one uh, piece of feedback that we've talked about and discussed as well which is not so much about your competency as a trainer but the nature of the beast so to speak is that how do you break down that barrier of uh, people watching this in a quite of a passive way saying that yes this is very fascinating um, in terms of the kind of feel that you have watching a fascinating documentary and actually yeah. being involved in it actually buying in oh, to the idea I of know. caring about it oh that is a million dollar question for me as a business person you know mm. as an entrepreneur in this space let me give you an example from last night I was conducting a workshop on connecting with Chinese visitors together with a business partner of mine called David Thomas, who's amazing, runs okay. the company Think Global. Um, he works extensively with China, and, and I work with China too, you know, go there sometimes to speak, um, lots of people from China in Australia. Mm. Um, but these businesses are noticing how 50%, 60%, 90% of the clients in their stores in the city of Sydney, they're Chinese. And they're also noticing that there's some different behaviors that these clients display. Um, let's just take an example of a luxury goods uh, company who, who sell fabulous handbags and shoes. 90% of the clients in their stores come off the street and they're visiting and they have money to spend and they walk in. But the people who are selling, there's a language barrier and they can't quite connect. They can't quite get these people who visit to sign on to their mailing list to, to become a loyal customer. Um, and when the people walk out of there and they do some surveys, they realize that they didn't have a great customer experience. So here's what they ask themselves before they walk into our trainings, and here's what most people say to me before they have a training. They said, well, we recognize there's a little bit of a lack of connection here. Uh, can you just tell me what to do? Or perhaps people will say, can you just tell me what not to do? Thinking that they've offended someone by using a gesture that wasn't appropriate. Or, you know, doing something little that they didn't know was, was culturally. Right, so they're looking for like a checklist. They are. They're looking for a checklist and they're looking for specifics. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to know specifically, you know, in my interactions with, for example, Chinese <coughs> visitors, how should I hand over my business card? The reason everybody's focusing on these 
do's and don'ts, the checklist stuff, is that this is what we can see about culture. But the most important things we need to understand and know about culture is what we cannot see. So in training, we often talk about the cultural iceberg. Yeah. You know how icebergs work, you know? A tenth is above the surface, the rest is hidden. Above the surface are all the wonderful things about culture that we see, hear, touch, taste, smell. Mm. Below the surface lurks our values, our beliefs, our assumptions, um, our deep ideas of what's true and false. And they will impact this interaction as they impact many others. So how do you connect with the Chinese customers? After we spend only two hours together, they ask, they, they actually change their question to just tell me what to do. They ask instead, can you help me understand the mindsets of many Chinese people who visit my shop? You know, what, what kind of lives do they live in China? Where, where are they coming from culturally? What's most important to them in this interaction? And we find slight differences that make a huge difference. Like, is it most important to, create, to, to, to go through this transaction with a smile and really quickly? Or is it much more important to take the time to build a relationship, to exchange <coughs> some knowledge about each other? It could be the business card. You know, is it important that I seek out that person who really is the person who can pay, but who's not speaking English? Um, how can I build a relationship with him or her? So we go from the tip of the iceberg to the bottom in the space of two hours, and people are then really much better equipped to navigate culture in their own interactions. This is something that really excites me because, you know, coming from the place of being um, a brand and, and marketing kind of guy, I always think about branding and marketing as the foundation of any good business and the foundation of branding and marketing um, or good branding and marketing strategy is relationships. And yes. you have a lot of branding and marketing experts out there who talk about, you know, using this strategy or this tactic um, mm. in terms of, you know, finding your niche market, how old are they, um, where they come from, what do they live like. But they're not really talking about the importance of actually optimizing that relationship from the from the point of view of saying that it's not just about connecting your product with your customer. It's actually about connecting your cultural perception with their cultural perception. Exactly. Because that's how you're going to communicate and then you can talk about your product or service. Yes, you always, it always gives me the chills when you talk about these things because it rings so true even to me as a layperson mm. about what makes people tick and what makes business work. Um, I had a training the other day with an expatriate, a very um, you know, dynamic person, a woman who is off to Beijing. And she said, look, I, I am going to market to my Chinese clients and I just want to know some, <coughs> some very important things about how I do that. And so while she thinks strategically and she's high-powered, um, her questions to me were very simple. She said, you know, I heard that red and gold are good colors. What's a bad color? <laughs> That's <laughs> so, very interesting. Yeah, I was thinking that too because we do tend to grasp on. I mean, where do we start? We start at the surface. And it's my job as a cultural trainer to meet people where they're at and take them deeper and make them go faster in terms of learning about culture. And you'll never get there if you keep scratching at a hundred or a thousand details about a culture. You just won't. You need to understand the deeper layers. But we started there and we talked about why the color yellow uh, was seen as a seedy color at times and why the color purple could be good in moderation, it's the color of wisdom. I know some of those things. I am certainly not a marketing expert, but I did tell her uh, that when we're talking about these things, let's talk about also why um, it's important to pay attention to symbols in Chinese mm -hmm. culture. And then we can dig down from there. And she said, yes, yes, they're very superstitious. And I said, yep, that's what it looks like from a 
control fate perspective, which is what many Western cultures uh, value. Mm. So, you know, we did, we did have a chat about that. And then what we eventually talked about, and it doesn't take that long, um, after about half an hour of the nitty-gritties, we got down to this idea of, you know, where does this idea, where, where do we come from when we think that we need to pay attention to balancing elements, to find auspicious times, to put auspicious symbols in our offices, to feng shui our offices? What's that all about? What kind of a worldview do you have? What have you been raised and rewarded on? As opposed to this idea that we should really um, try to control fate and just get to the task as soon as possible. So that was a much <coughs> juicier conversation and it is one that will equip her so much better to pay proper attention and respect to some of the small things that matter a lot in China. And then from there, it'll be easy to learn about cultures and she can, she can ask much better questions of her Chinese colleagues in Beijing. Yeah, I, I want to ask a really, um, a really quick question about this, but it's a little bit uh, controversial or ambiguous in a sense as well. A yes. lot of people say that, well, you know what, Matt, we as Australians, we don't really have a culture. It's just a whole bunch of cultures <laughs> coming together. It's a mishmash. And, you know, the, the culture we have is, and, and I'm saying this in a bit of a more of an Australian accent because, oh, yeah. um, <laughs> because it's, it's ironic, actually, yes. that Australians <laughs> say that. Now... And I think the important thing and the relevance of this in this context is that people say uh, Australia, for example, don't have a culture. And in the same vein, people will say, well, some countries are more cultural than other countries. Yeah. For example, India has a very rich culture and you know, China has a very rich culture. Australia has a very diluted culture. In some aspects, I can see where people are coming from. But does this mean that you need to pay you know, more attention to culture in some places as opposed to others? Mm, what a good question that is. And I have been told many times from people when on a cocktail party situation, they asked me, what do I do? I said, I do cultural training. And they said, that must be awful in Australia because we have no culture. So I totally, I hear this all the time. And it's not especially Australian to be blind to our culture, although we tend not to, not to see our culture as human being and maybe not to value what we do have. But I, I agree with you. You can see where they're coming from. When you're looking at a place like India with so many cultures, and also, I would say, from my experience from the outside, quite a bit of pride mm -hmm. in culture and tradition. Sure. You, yeah. might, you might think that, you know, well, Australians, we, we, but what do we have? You know, put the prawn on the barbie. Well, we don't say that. We say, check the prawn on the barbie. <laughs> See, yeah. I'm not acclimatized yet. Seven years is not enough. Um, shrimp. Shrimp on the barbie. Yeah, shrimp. It You'll is. get there. Thank Mind you, you I've never been to a barbecue with a shrimp on the barbie. Have you? Never. <laughs> I've been to and I grew up completely in Sydney. Yeah, isn't that funny? <laughs> yes, so it's just a myth, isn't it? No, I think that um, people tend to, um, I guess part of Australian culture is the tall poppy syndrome. So first of all, we don't want to be too proud or appear too proud. Mm. Uh, but when we're looking at other cultures, we might think, oh, you know, look at their old buildings or look at their strong traditions. We don't have that. You know, we're a bit of everything. We, you know, you and I know that a majority of Australians um, are either born outside of Australia or have at least one parent who is. Yeah. Uh, and you, uh, you and I among them, and so would many people be who listen to this program. That doesn't mean our culture goes away. It means that we, we have, everybody has a mix, but we have more of a global mix, a, a mix that, you know, reaches further. And I guess the question is, how can we understand and value culture because when we talk about 
this cultural richness that we have. And, and you, you know, probably know, and everybody who listens probably hear this all the time, but we're a multicultural society, and isn't that fabulous, and what, what a wonderful richness that is. And people also talk about capitalizing on culture. Mm-hmm. Now here's where I, as a cultural trainer, um, get excited, but I also get frustrated. Because again, when we haven't thought about <coughs> culture, we haven't seen our own culture from the outside, we tend to think, yeah, right, we have lots of different foods. We tap into them. Let me go you have Vietnamese one day and Italian the next. Excellent. Again, tip of the iceberg. When we talk about capitalizing your culture and I ask companies, what are you doing? Capitalizing your culturally diverse workforce. They say, it's great. Um, you know, our Chinese um, account managers or our, um, you know, the people who sell property, they agents we have such a good report with our Chinese community but I say well let's go further than that it's not just I speak a certain language I can connect with that culture what about us all tapping into this richness of culture what about all of us understanding and this is maybe you know a, a new definition for many but that culture is really just the way that we as a group solve universal human dilemmas and then we know that we have many options to solve problems, not just to enjoy food or to, you know, speak languages. But if we see culture as a global smorgasbord of ways in which we can interact as human beings, of ways that we can resolve dilemmas like, you know, how do I deal with hierarchy? We've got to have someone taking the lead. Sometimes in our family, and we change those roles around. Sometimes in our organization, sometimes in our society. You know, how do we relate to hierarchy? Um, how much hierarchy is a good thing? How, how much is too much? How direct can we be? Um, you know, how should parents relate to their children when they're little and when they're grown up? There is so much cultural richness to this. And if we can move away from deciding that, you know, one is better than the other, or one is right and one is wrong, then we can really talk about the richness of culture. And in Australia, has a very distinct culture, and it's really evident to me. I can, I'm happy to talk about what I see, but it's really evident to me when I work with Australians who are going to Asia, or Australians in Asia. I can see how our culture gets us into trouble all the time, and we don't <laughs> Is that to say it's a naughty culture? Oh, very naughty culture. <laughs> I guess... Uh, what lands Australians in a bit of hot water sometimes, and can also be a delightful thing about Australians, but it is um, that we like this idea of laid back yeah. in our language. We tend to be quite informal, tend to call a spade a spade. <coughs> I think we are one of the few cultures, even in the English-speaking world, where when you're really good mates, you can take the piss out of each other. Yeah. And excuse me for using rough language on your show, but we do that all the time oh, in no, Australia. No, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, one of the terms of endearments that I see, you know, around the office is someone whacking a, a work colleague, a good mate, on the, on the back and saying, you bastard. Yeah. <laughs> and I see people in the room who haven't gotten their head across this particular way of expressing oneself really take offense. Mm. You know, it's such an insult. You know, in Australia, it's a term of endearment. We make fun of our friends. It's one of the ways in which you know we're good friends. Yeah. In fact, if you don't, you can feel left out. Yeah, exactly. So that kind of banter. Um, and the way we use swear words um, sometimes, just to mm-hmm. pepper our language a little bit, uh, and the way we shorten things, you know, little informalities like that. I, I, I guess one of the typical things that we think we don't say anymore, but we certainly do, I say it all the time, is she'll be right, mate. Yeah. And we might think of that as a bit awkward, you know, you might not say that, and yet the attitude might prevail in Australia. 
I think that's a very, very good point because what you just said there right at the end, that the attitude might prevail. Because when people think of Australian culture, they, they can sometimes relate to uh, these, you know, almost checklist items that you're running off in terms of the phrases that we use and the colloquialisms that we use. But what they don't consider is that every culture has colloquialisms, every culture has certain um, modes of expression, but it's the principle and the attitude, as you said, uh, rightly so, behind it that will actually make the difference because yeah. it's not necessarily one um, a combination of words that clashes with another combination of words. It's an attitude that can clash with another attitude and exactly. either cause conflict <coughs> excuse me, or cause more harmony. Yeah, and you know, Dave, I have to say, I've been thinking about this um, now because we're having this conversation. I was thinking back to this time when I did meet you, like you referred to earlier on, how, um, was it a couple of years ago, maybe four or five years ago now, I yeah, uh, walked into the training room in Western Sydney and, yes. you know, some people, I, I work with lots of people over the years, you know, hundreds, some months, thousands over the years, and some people really make an impression in terms of their ability to understand culture, their insights, their experiences, and their ability to articulate it. And you are, are one of them, maybe one of the, <laughs> oh, the first and foremost among them. Yeah, and I mean... I remember that day. I remember you articulating things around cultural identity, you know, with your own rich experience and mix. Um, you asked questions that made me think about how I relate to my field. That was after about 10 years at the time of working in it. Right. And you helped the whole group along. And I feel that we have occasionally, we get people like you who can really help others see this complex and often opaque thing that is culture in a new light. And I think that's what I'm striving for too. But but thank you for doing that on the day and for staying with me and continuing to do that. You have a, a gift for articulating these things. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. And I'm very humbled by it. Uh, I, I also want to hope that um, I've definitely grown a lot and my perspective has grown a lot in the past five years because that certainly feels like a lifetime ago. Um, yeah. But it's, yeah. it's also interesting that you say that because it raises another question that's been on my mind, which is related to the first question I asked, that I sometimes get accused for being over-intellectual and uh -huh. um, you know, looking very analytically and deeply into things. And it's fine. I think it's a part of my charm. It can be a double-edged sword, but, but <laughs> it, it is who I am. Uh, yeah. However, putting, you know, putting myself into the position of devil's advocate and looking from uh, the perspective of people who are perhaps... Uh, a little bit simpler, who are a little bit more comfortable in their life, uh, mm. who are not such uh, deep thinkers. I could forgive them for saying that, you know, all of this conversation about cultural intelligence is very fascinating. However, it's an intellectual pursuit mm. that should perhaps be left to academics mm. or people who are specifically in the field. For yeah. example, not everybody should um, really feels obligated to care about uh, microeconomics, for example, just for right sure. off the top of my head. Yeah, so, a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Now, I personally believe that everybody should care about cultural intelligence, especially in a country like Australia, and in fact, all Western countries, um, especially, but all over the world, really, uh, since every country these days is being influenced by, um, you know, the, the coalition of the Western world, if you will, uh, mm -hmm. from a cultural perspective. How do we how do we get that message across to people that it's not yeah. just about an intellectual pursuit? It's no. yeah, you know exactly. whether you're an executive or a business. I think we covered that quite well actually about how it's relevant to business people um, mm. expanding their business in a global marketplace and uh, just relating to their customers and clients and colleagues and associates better. Yeah, but yeah. the everyday person, maybe someone who's not a business person, someone who's just you know clocks into the office every day and does a job um, that isn't related to multiculturalism. Yeah. Why should they care? 
Why should they care? And there is, this is, there's three or four million dollar questions on culture. That is one of them. Um, we talk about what is cultural mm -hmm. so that people can see it more clearly. That usually helps people realize that it matters a bit more than they thought. Why should I care is a huge question. And how should I then, if I do care and I see cultural difference, act to connect with people? Yeah, this exactly. A version of the third culture question. Yes, why should people care? In Australia, the second most multicultural nation in the Western world, if you just look at birthplace, mm. well, that's you know statistical reason why we should care because you meet people from different cultures all the time. You know, you meet them at the bus stop, you meet them as neighbors, you meet them on the beach if you hang out on the beach or in the cafe, uh, <coughs> you meet them at school. But why should you care? And most people who are not from a culture so different to you know the mainstream culture, they don't feel that it is an issue. And when I work with people, oftentimes, um, if you just before I ask the, answer the question why they should care, <laughs> I have to say as a trainer, me saying, oh, you should definitely care, is not the best way to help people realize why they should care. Yeah. So I do spend some time in workshops, in coaching and speaking, going over how, yeah, you know, the world is changing. You just mentioned there that, you know, we've all been influenced by the Western world, but, you know, we know we're in the Eastern century now. Hmm. And um, then we can talk a little bit about, you know, who's coming into Australia, the major two countries, three countries are New Zealand, China and India of origin. So we see that in our communities. Um, again, though, why should you care? It's so comforting to say we're all the same, which is also true. Um, and I'll just treat everybody like I want to be treated. Now, when I walked into a um, council in central Sydney not so long ago, and I said, well, welcome everybody to cultural intelligence. <clears throat> Within 20 seconds, somebody put their hand up and said, why do we have to be here? Why do I have to learn about culture? Can't I just treat everybody the same? Mm. And I said, what a good question. I could ask that right away and say, no, you can't. But it's much more powerful if we go through this training and you then tell me why you should care. And part of this training is putting people in situations where they really feel the effects of culture. And if you're from a mainstream um, culture, you haven't felt them very much, which is probably why you don't care. You know, you walk around in a world where you're pretty comfortable all of the time. And, you know, what you were raised and rewarded for is still valid in your workplace, in your social life. Um, you know, you don't have to adjust a whole, um, such a big amount or such a big way. Uh, you're usually pretty comfortable in your world, in your slice of multicultural Australia. And yet, if I ask people, you know, in what circles do you move? Some people don't really move outside of their circles. So when we talk about the effects of culture and what happens to someone at the other end, people start realizing, ah, when I just act the way that I think is right according to my culture, I'm not fully engaging with you. I don't fully get you if you have different culture, that you come from a different culture. Um, I might not be providing services very well with you. I might be losing opportunities for friendship. <coughs> so there are many reasons why you should care about culture, but I can't really dictate to people why they should. I can only lead them down this path and say, why do you think now that culture matters? And most people will say in the end, something that you talked about in the relationship to marketing, it is about building strong relationships. And if we have segregation, you know, self-chosen cultural segregation, that's all good and well until we get conflict. 
it's okay that you don't tap into all cultures all of the time, but if you have no connection with people from different cultures, if you, if you only move in your different cultural circles, and I don't care if that's a Swedish cultural circle or a, an Anglo-Australian cultural circle, you lose out. And when push comes to shove, and you might have a different opinion about something, or you might want to get a job, or you might want to uh, you know, enjoy yourself at a party, you might realize, you might find yourself come up short. Mm. You don't have the world at your fingertips, and you need to in not just multicultural Australia, but the, the global society that we are a part of. Yeah, this is, this is beautiful. This, this show is about conversations about uh, optimizing business leadership and life. And we've talked about optimizing business and we've talked about optimizing um, you know, your, your life in general in terms of relationships and social life. But I think over-encompassing all of this, it's actually a very strong aspect of leadership that comes into it. Mm, and absolutely. quite frankly, everybody these days has the responsibility to have some level of personal leadership, if not a obvious uh, position of leadership in their work, um, they, de- they definitely, people are more empowered to take on yeah. positions of leadership. And if they want to optimize, you know, any area of their life or their business, um, any area of their life at all, really, they, they need to accept and acknowledge that uh, we all have a certain level of leadership that we need to take ownership over, yeah. including at a sociological level, I think. Yeah. And you know, it's just putting yourself out there into the world. Um, inherently, just by being here, we take on a position of leadership. And exactly. then how we relate to people um, and, and our capacity to relate to people is something that, you know, either it's going to be developed and influenced by external factors and you're not going to have any control over it. Or, you know, you can take the reins into your own hands a little bit and yeah, just accept yeah. that, you know what, I'm actually going to influence this myself so that I can optimize my leadership. Absolutely. And, you know, you open up, you know, the idea that you know, leadership is something that everybody, it, it's leadership in your own life. Yeah. That, that is everybody's job. And, you know, why, why would you care if you're not an international business or if you're not providing services to multicultural Australia every day? Exactly. But, in fact, this brings me to some things that I've read, you know, and I do tap into academic circles because they have time to look into specific slices <laughs> of, of life that I don't have time for either. That's like right. you, I'm a, you know, I like to philosophize. Yeah, we know. some people, <laughs> yes, we like, that's why we have such good conversations, or at least I think we do, and <laughs> see what the people think who are listening. But um, one of the things that some academics have looked into is the micro interactions of everyday life. And in those interactions, we create the society that we live in bit by bit. Whether that is a micro-interactions from one parent to another in a playground, um, and whether that goes well or doesn't, whether that creates more connection or less connection, this matters in the long run. It all adds up. Uh, and Gazan Hage, which is a, a, an academic in Australia, he said it really well. He says, in Australia, we have a multiculturalism of coexistence, mm. not of exchange. Yeah. And I agree. I think yeah. many of us, you know, who are really, you know, for, for, for whatever reason, we have exchanged because we were fascinated by each other's different paths of life and, and culture is part of that and different ways that we go about doing things and where we're coming from. But many people, they don't look for that. And so what happens is that we exist side by side and we coexist and then culture can just flare up. And I mean, we don't have to, you know, go too deeply into Cronulla or, or any of these events. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, but, it, but it can flare up. And if we don't have a relationship at that point, if we don't have connectedness, if we don't understand where each other are coming from, we will get stuck. And we will probably, from that interaction, 
get further apart, not closer together. And I, I think that is very damaging. I see it happen in Europe. It, it happens here now and again. It can easily happen. So there, there's sort of the, the stick of why we should care because our society can plunge into a society of disconnectedness if we uh, don't. Now, this is a question I've been wanting to ask you for a long time. I just realized I had forgot about this question in preparation for the episode. When I was in university, actually when I was in high school even, senior high school, I had this experience where I had uh, I had changed high schools uh, because my mom had just passed away and I was already preparing to go to a better school and I had this um, I had this real urge to just you know start fresh and kind of change my life and get away from uh, some old patterns. So I, I went to a new school and I started quite late because of the circumstances that I had just come from. So mm-hmm. it was the eleventh grade um, and I remember walking into the class and sit, sitting down on the table and you know I was a stranger and I was still a kid uh, even if at the time I didn't think so <laughs> and, you know lo- looking around and kind of just keeping my head down and saying okay you know I just want to get through this I was in a bit of a daze I had you know a little bit of depression as well um, and I was feeling very very lost and I remember this guy he came up to me at the end of the class and he tapped me on the shoulder and he said hey man how are you doing and I said yeah I'm good and he said Okay, when it's recess or lunch, right? He just told me the most natural way possible as if this was just the law of the land. He said, uh, come up to this particular area at the school, which was sort of this particular area, not important where it was. And I said, uh, okay, sure, I'll, I'll come. Now, the interesting, the reason I'm telling you this is because when I got there, what I realized was is that I walked up this, uh, this hill um, in this high school playground and there was um, this little bench area where um, a whole bunch of mostly um, Iranians were congregated. Oh, okay. And I looked to my right, and there was, this, um, there was this area where these kids were playing soccer, and they were mostly, um, you know, sort of, uh, or I don't know what they were, maybe Vietnamese, Korean, possibly, but they were one particular uh, ethnic group. Yeah. I walked up further up to where I was supposed to go, and I met yeah. with all these guys, and at the time I didn't realize until a few months later I kind of, looked up, looked around, and I was like, where am I? I am surrounded <laughs> by Indians. Wow. I'm surrounded by Indians, and I had no idea. Yeah, and yeah. Mind you, I had friends in classes that were, um, that you know, I sat with who were from different cultural backgrounds, and, and they were good friends of mine. But when yeah. it came to recess and lunch, where people um, were, you know, sort of congregating in their social circles, Somehow, everybody split up into their social divides. And this is, mind you, one of the, uh, this is Cherrybrook Technology High School. It's one of the oh, largest yeah, yeah. Um, public schools in Australia in terms of population. It's and it's also one of the most culturally diverse schools in Australia. In fact, yeah. I think it is the most culturally diverse school in Australia. So this is fascinating. So when I went to university, uh, I, I had this almost kind of um, existential angst about this issue. I said, yeah. you know what? I'm going to make a really, really proactive effort to have an actual social circle that has a combination of different cultural backgrounds because this is something that I value. And at the time, I didn't quite know why I valued it. Um, It it just, I did. I didn't didn't want to be that uh, cliche story where everyone's segregated into their own um, ethnic groups. And a couple of years later, I kind of, you know, just had this moment of taking stock of this and checking my inventory, uh, if you will, my social (laughs) inventory. And... Again, 80% or more of my social circle were people from the subcontinent. Yeah. 
And I have grown up my entire life in Sydney, and I looked around, and when I looked at the people that I overlapped with, for example, you know, if I had a friend who was Chinese, I was the exception to the rule because eighty percent of their social circle was Chinese, and you know, if I had a European friend, same thing. I was the exception to the rule in their social circle. Yeah. How fascinating, Jeff, and what you know, what what leadership you showed as a as a really young person too, to recognize, to notice this, and to say, well, I'm going to try to expand from this, without throwing the baby out with the bathwater and saying I'm never going to hang out with anybody from the subcontinent again. <laughs> yeah, no, of course, and I know people like that, but it wasn't like that for me. No, no, exactly. But but wh- why do you think this happens? Because as human beings, we tend to look for what is known. And it's very interesting this research that comes out in a field called unconscious bias mm-hmm. that really, in later years, because of the um, prominence of neuroscience, we've been able to prove that what we had a hunch was true it keeps being true. It is part of our almost our lizard brain, our you know our subconscious quick yeah. brain to always scan the environment. And we get so much input. I read somewhere that we get 11 million pieces of input throughout the day and we can't take them out to our conscious mind because we go nuts. So we can take about 30, 40 things in, um, in our working memory. And so that subconscious mind does some of the work for us to, to just scan the environment for danger and for comfort uh, and to, to meet our needs. And so the subconscious environment is constantly going friend or foe, friend or foe, friend or foe. And the way that we would have survived, you know, when we, in ancient times, would have been to, to go, okay, friend is someone from my tribe, from, from people that I recognize, because we wouldn't have met many people during our lifetime. And when yeah. we did, it wouldn't have always been particularly benevolent. Could be, but wasn't always. Mm. So, so we, we tend to be programmed to look for what's similar. And once we find that, we make a connection. So this is why it's so important to build a relationship so we can find what, what is universal, what is human, what is similar, what are personal you know, ways in which we intersect. This doesn't mean that we're forever doomed never to want to hang out with people that, that are different from us, but it means we have to make that conscious effort if we want to open up uh, you know, our, our life to experience more of the world and not to close ourselves down to people on, on really what is false ground. Part of the unconscious bias, I just want to mention this to really highlight how it works, mm-hmm. is that you know that there's the bias that says you and I are similar, um, so therefore we, we have, you know, I'm going to try to be friends with you. It's, it's a natural thing. I mean, you were new in your school. Of course you want to be with anybody who's, who's inviting you and who seems friendly and, and known. Yeah. Um, and this happens to expats all the time, so you'll see these expat and enclaves or immigrant, you know, tend to, to huddle for some practical reasons, but also for these emotional reasons. Um, There's also something called confirmation bias when you have this view of how the world should work and once this happens you feel really comfortable and life conforms to expectation, you know, it's nice and safe. One of the things we tend to think about when it comes to leadership, um, when people in the unconscious bias field looked at they looked at something quite random, which someone called Malcolm Gladwell, who you may know and the listeners may know as a, course, an author. Point. Exactly, tipping yeah, point outliers, blink, exactly. In mm. blink, in fact, he does describe this phenomenon that has been very well researched, that um, 70%, I think it is, of Americans, so he's looking just at the USA, mm-hmm. CEOs are over six foot tall. Yeah, yeah, I remember. 
but but it's not true of most people you know less less i think it's about 30 percent that are over six foot tall in general population so i may not have this the fingers completely right it might have been six foot two or it might have been a higher percentage but it was an overwhelming majority that was tall they were tall um as compared with the general population why is that nobody sits there and scans the cvs and does the job interviews and and says no look you, you you'll be too short for this job but what is happening is of course that part of what makes up our idea of a leader is someone almost like a father or a mother figure someone tall um, we call that you know that, that they have confidence or they have gravitas and we don't actually question this or i think most american presidents have been very tall and the current one is no exception mm. so we have this idea that tall people are leaders and leaders are tall people and uh, it's not something that's conscious it's subconscious and it's something we need to be aware of in order to challenge it. Who do we think is fit for, you know, leadership in the sense of a high position? Yeah. So that's kind of a roundabout way to, to respond to what you were saying, which, which is that, you know, we tend to go for certain things and, and likeness and similarity is one of them. What and why should we, what do we need to do and why should we open up our minds to difference? I think it can be, if, if people are not thinking about this in a deep or academic or philosophizing way, I'm thinking, hey, how do you eat? Do you eat one type of food every day? Do you just, are you limited to 10 types of food in your diet? If you are, and maybe you are for health reasons, you know, that's one thing. But if you are limiting yourself, you're not living, you know, the fullest life. You're not having the full experience. Your body is not getting the full amount of nutrients. I think it's the same thing with culture. If you look around, you realize I only hang around with, work with, take advice from, tap into people who are pretty much the same kind of person. But you're not you're not getting the full benefit of everything that's out there of all the richness. Yeah, so th this really know. overlaps with um, with another nerdy topic that I'm really fascinated with, all which right. is evolutionary biology and mm. evolutionary psychology. And basically, you know, it's kind of like the nature versus nurture debate, but really. How much are we conditioned to think and behave a certain way based on those survival instincts that you were talking about? And yeah. if everything is seen as, um, you know, if we first filter for threat, our reptilian brain or uh, critter brain or critter uh, levels are unconscious, first filters for threats, then why is it that, and you don't really have to answer this question because I want to tie it into another question that we were going to talk about. But mm -hmm. I'm curious as to why is it that we see cultural differences or people that are different as a threat? Does that mean that from an evolutionary biology perspective or an evolutionary psychology perspective, that inherently we are all racist? Mm. Mm. Ha, huge and important question. Many immigrants that I work with, and I'm, I'm just going to respond to and I, you know, the ideas that you put forward. Sure. Because if we are um, hardwired for racism, you know, what's, what's the point? <laughs> I think that, you know, we... We have capacity for so many things as human beings. And if we're aware of, you know, some of the things that that aren't working for us, well, we can much more effectively combat them. Or yeah. some tendencies that, that we have, we can we can realize when to use them. We can be conscious about when to use them, when not to use them, so we have a choice. Mm. Many immigrants that I work with, and I mean there's so many of us, we know this instinctively in a way. You know, this whole idea that if you have an unusual name you won't be getting a job as easily as if you have a name that people recognize and feel comfortable with. I mean, it's abhorrent. If you as an employer say, ah, oh, you must change your name to succeed in this company, you know, that's, 
you, you will fall foul of the New South Wales Anti-Discrimination Act. That's right. Uh, yes. And you should. Mm-hmm. And yet, people do change their names. Yeah. Um, I worked with a guy, and this happens in all cultures, I worked with a guy called Hushang Bashrafsan, mm-hmm. uh, who was um, Persian from Iran in Sweden. And he said, yeah, I've you know, stubbornly maintained my name. And I've seen all these blind studies come out about how people with names like mine, they don't get chosen, they don't get called to interviews. And I said, well, how did you come at it? He said, I didn't. The company that hired me, they practiced blind recruiting. They edited out all details of um, my, you know, that could give away my ethnic identity. Right. And, and they hired me and I thought, wow, okay, well, maybe that's what it takes sometimes yeah. for us to overcome some of our unconscious bias, you know, remove, remove those signals then until you become more comfortable with Hushan Bashrafsan, which of course his team now was. Mm. Uh, it, it's a bit, you know, to me, that's a bit sad. We should be working on the end of opening up people's minds. Uh, we can't remove bias from our systems completely. But I wonder too, you know, what the beast called racism, what, we, what are some things that we, that we need to do? Because we have to actively combat that every day. The right yeah. to be a bigot, you know, should take a much, you know, should take a much subordinate um, position to the right to be respected, whoever you are, whatever name you have. Um, so I'd love to hear your, your reflections on that too. Yeah, look, I mean, I think it's one of those questions I definitely don't have an answer to yet. It's something that I, um, I'm i not so worked up about as many people are. But I remember that when I was, uh, when I was young, around the time of uh, probably in the middle of my undergrad studies at university, I came to this point of feeling like, you know, yeah, racism is there. And yes, I certainly acknowledge that it's not, it's not a phantom... Um, thing that people get overly worked up about it's it, it's real mm. however it's something that uh, people who have suffered a little bit of racism uh, exercise a little bit too much of a once bitten twice shy mentality mm. at the yeah. time that's what i used to think and especially with these conversations i would have with my father uh, with my dad i would say you know have you considered that maybe what you're talking about is not racism maybe someone just doesn't like you or maybe you know you're just um, you're just looking out for these things a little bit too much. That's why you're noticing them more. Mm-hmm. And I, I used to say these things to him, and I used to walk around basically saying that if I don't acknowledge or if I don't pay attention to racism, I won't give that energy and have it reflected back on me. Yeah. And in some aspects, um, it worked. You know, a, a lot of, um, for example, I learned this experience with uh, girls that I dated who would often admit that, you know, before I met you, I would never have imagined. Um, to even be friends with someone who looked like you, uh, mm-hmm. let alone you know taking a relationship a little further. But there came a point in time where my father was working for um, an extreme, one of the, basically one of the biggest companies in the world, um, in you know a relatively senior, well-respected position, and he experienced what you could classify as corporate bullying, um, mm-hmm. but it was ingrained in a lot of racism. Now the question that came up for me at that point was. It was a bit of a chicken and egg. Did the racism come first or did the corporate bullying come first? And there were other intentions and agendas behind the discrimination. But um, the, you know, the racist sort of uh, dialogue became a vehicle to exercise that hatred, exercise yeah. that discrimination. I hope that makes sense to, to you it and everyone listening. Com- yeah, it makes complete sense to me. I hope it does to others, too. I, yeah. I think that, you know, like you said, it's not to discount that racism is real because it is and it's mm. painful and it costs 
us as a society all the time and it can be devastating to individuals who are bullied or never get the chance or internalize that racism and think that they're inferior there are you know it's a horrible beast and it can lead to death and, and despair yeah um, so so all those things definitely you know we need to combat racism every day I guess for me personally and you know because of the way I look I haven't, I, I, I'm, you know, typical Swedish blonde, blue-eyed. I have, I don't think I've experienced racism. I might have experienced sexism, but I, you know, have maybe a little bit of prejudice, but I have not got that personal experience. So I really respect that others do. Um, personally, for me, when it comes to my line of work, when I was younger, as a teenage young, yeah. I was on the barricades. I was screaming and shouting, um, against racism and I still have that fire in my belly. What I learned as I grew older was if we focus on the anti, on the bad, on the problem, you know, that's one area that we have to address and we can address that in so many ways. Legal, uh, political, opinion, um, we can do that but I found for myself that I wanted to focus at the other end of that which is to increase cultural understanding and connection and this indirectly combats racism. When I have a cultural training, I know from experience, if I have 30 people in the room, that there might be, you know, statistically, and this has been, you know, studied again and again, one or two who are, they are close-minded. Some of them, it's a pathological thing, you know, they're, they're not well, they're, um, you know, they suffer um, psychologically. Yeah. And so, you know, nothing I say is going to help them. Xenophobia might be part of their anxiety, so, you know, there needs to be other pure sort of cultural training um, to help them become more comfortable. Others are outright racists. And I've had many of those people in my training rooms. And in my, you know, in just dealing with it, in the training, I'll say, look, this is not a forum for us to discuss whether multiculturalism is good or not. We have multiculturalism. It's in your organization, it's in your community. Uh, we're going to talk about how to make that work. If you're not able or willing to do that, you need to leave. And mm -hmm. I've done that twice, uh, over 15 years. Wow. Uh, and then we have a couple of people in every training who are completely nuts about, you know, cultural diversity, about acceptance in a good way. You know, they're, they're thrilled, they live their lives, they put themselves forward and out in this space like you, you know, decided to do. And they love it. And they, they find that rich, um, they, they're rich and buy it and they want to sort of spread this to other people. Then we have the rest of the people. So we've got 20 people at least in the middle in this group of 30 you're kind of going, yeah, you know, it doesn't really bother me. You know, I'm tolerant. It doesn't really make a difference to me. Those are the people I work on. Those are the people whose minds I'd like to open just a little bit to the possibility that connecting with someone who is different to you, not just connecting, but, but humbly listening, understanding, learning from them, from the way they deal with things culturally, is a good thing. So to me, focusing on the close minds, somebody does need to do that, and that does need to say this is not acceptable. But I focus on, well, what would be the solution? And most people I meet are not, they, they don't think themselves that they are outright racist. They're just not you know, comfortable with it. People should speak English. You know, they're here now. They should live our way of life. So you need to work with their mindsets and open up their minds, I think. And, and also for the people who have been discriminated against to say, yep, yeah, that's real and that's awful, and here are some ways in which you can deal with that. Now, what can you do to, to connect with people who are not like that? You know, what is it that you need to do not to be stuck in that space, in yeah. the problem space? I think if I, I think if I had to sum it up uh, of what you're saying in a very, uh, very succinct sort of almost simplistic way, is that really 
rather than focusing, at least for me, this is how I feel about it, rather than focusing on the problem and uh, dwelling on it so much, yeah. we should acknowledge the problem, but then uh, really focus on what's on the other side of the problem. If yeah. we do solve this problem, exactly. what's what's the point of it? What's what's on the other side? What would the word world look like if, um, if this problem was solved? Yeah, or resolved exactly. at least. Exactly. And you know, sometimes, Deb, I'd like to get people like you and some others that I meet in my training and, and get you together and, and mm -hmm. just, you know, do a movie, make a movie or bring you into my trainings and say, hey, here's what the world looks like from the point of view of someone who finds that it's worth it embracing cultural diversity in a proactive way. Yeah. Here's they do it, you know, here's how we can, here's what they get out of it. We did mention some of the costs and the problems and the issues that happen when we have a breakdown in relationships across cultures. But there are also, you know, talking about this, the solutions focus, talking about what would it look like if it worked, when it works, which it does, you know, so much of the time. What are some of the benefits yeah. of cultural intelligence for each and every individual, so your ability to deal very well across cultures? What are the benefits for them? What are the benefits for society? So this brings me to something that you, a term that you mentioned that I wanted to talk about. We discussed this at the start of the episode as well. Uh, sorry, before we started the episode, the creative dividend of multiculturalism. <laughs> it sounds really cool. sounds very <laughs> fascinating. Um, and you said example, uh, how culturally diverse teams can be the most productive if that diversity is handled right. So firstly, that's an example. It's not what it necessarily means, right? So what does it mean? What is creative dividend of multiculturalism? It actually means, and it's very literal, it means that we become more creative as a result of dealing across cultures, dealing well or connecting well across cultures. So because of a new field called cultural neuroscience that focuses on what happens to people's brains when they do certain things, um, we found that, and it's been very well documented, it's one of the biggest findings of that field, mm -hmm. when people immerse themselves in different cultures, and you can do that at school, like you talked about. You can do that by really seeking to understand and live in and take on board aspects of cultures that are all around you, whether that is because you fall in love with someone, or you have a new friend or a colleague, um, or most commonly when people have a chance to go somewhere else and be fully immersed and be, you know, a newcomer and a minority in a certain context, not, not going on a vacation to Bali, but, you know, having a real adventure or even living part of your life in another culture, that's where most people experience it. All those things requires you to see, to, to change things in your brain. And what I mean by that is, when, when I go as a Swedish person, I lived, as you have mentioned in the beginning, in many different cultures. I've lived in seven different places for longer periods of time. Yeah. And when I go and live in Malaysia, for example, it was really different. And I struggled massively to ha get my head around, how can I live here in a way that works? Because part of what was making me a good, um, you know, a good leader or a good friend in my other cultural contexts, part of that worked and part of that didn't work. And I was very confused about, you know, what was it that I was doing that wasn't really working for me? What was it that I could keep? But what I realized was that I don't have to take away my culture, but I have to add on some new ways of looking at the world and some new ways I'm acting on it. It doesn't make me any less than what I am. It makes me more than what I am. So if I can add, it's just like language. I speak Swedish and English pretty well and a couple of other languages quite badly. But just because I add a language doesn't mean I speak my current language is any worse. Yeah. So they found in cultural neuroscience that when you had not just traveled, but really exposed yourself to cultures and taken some pieces of them aboard, um, you know, something clicks in your brain, which gives you more 
and you probably know the terms for this better than I do, but more connections across the brain. Yeah, synapses. Synapses, yeah. And so then when they test people before and after they go on assignment, when they test people who say, um, I, don't, I don't have a very expanded you know, um, life in terms of culture, and they compare it with people who do, they tested it in so many different ways. But they find that people who have multicultural experiences become more creative. Because they have more ways to look at a problem, they have more people to ask and, cons and, and discuss with who give them you know, a broader understanding of things, and they can see more solutions to their problems. Okay. Now, I'm, I'm really fascinated about how this applies to uh, organizational psychology, organizational performance, <laughs> executives and everything as well. And yeah. also, um, you know, I'm also very fascinated about how it applies to individual people, especially mm -hmm. coming together. And this is something that we both were quite excited to talk about, uh, which is intercultural relationships. Uh, mm -hmm. You're in one right now when you have mm -hmm. two very beautiful kids as well. Lovely, lovely little girls, bilingual yeah. little girls. Yes. You know how um, sometimes I used to joke that, you know, um, I fall, I fall in love with one person, but I get, I got, you know, a whole country with it, and yeah. and falling in love with someone. Can you hear me or see me? Oh, hey, Lana, sorry. Yeah, I can hear you now. This has never happened before. Hey. The computer oh, just cool, froze cool. up. Sorry. Oh, I thought it was a Skype moment. It might have been a Skype moment, but it was a software yeah. issue, not a connection issue. All right, right, okay. Yeah. Do you want to start again on that question? Um, yes, if you don't mind, not necessarily on the question, but you were talking about your, uh, you know, we're still recording, so it's okay. Well, I'll edit where I need to, but uh, it's fine. Uh, these glitches happen uh, on yeah. the recording anyway. Uh, you were talking about the two cultures coming together and some of the things that pr provide uh, a lot of novelty and excitement um, yeah. can also become the little things that annoy you. Yeah. There's something that you said in what you sent me, which I was really interested in, that you said, um, you know, intercultural relationships, it's the microcosmos of the macro world. Mm. I thought that was a really interesting thing to say. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah, I mean, we are, I feel, yeah. part of the world, but the world is also in us. Mm -hmm. And uh, and to me, you know, the exploration that you do when you connect with someone else in a loving relationship, you know, you, you, um, you really can, I guess, more fully experience, you can get access to some of these differences. You know, you connect with someone so strongly that their experience gets mixed with yours. And, and you create this third, you know, little entity, which is you both together. And of course, when you have children, that's sort of, yeah. that becomes a physical entity as well. Um, but I find that um, I have learned, I learned so much about the different cultures and the experience of growing up in Australia from Matt. And Matt is not a typical Australian, but he can tell me, you know, from, this is what I grew up with. This is, this is an Australian, you know, experience. This is a point of view. And this is what I struggled with as an Australian who is not like many others, you know, we're all unique. But here's what I found easy with my culture and difficult with my culture. So, so we can explore, you know, different experiences and worldviews and, and ways to experience life, really, um, mm -hmm. through each other. Yeah. What are, I, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I'm still figuring this out, to be honest. I... I have, um, you know, I've had some relationships with people from slightly different cultures and then some relationships with people from uh, very different cultures, uh, both personal and professional. And in a couple of cases, um, you know, intimate romantic kind of relationships as well. And what I've learned from that experience is that sometimes it's those little subtle differences when we don't acknowledge them 
you know, if someone's, let's say, only two degrees of cultural separation from us, as opposed to, you know, 16 degrees of cultural separation from us, I just made that terminology up. But, mm-hmm. I like that. Um, <laughs> you know, if the, if the person is distinctly different, uh, we tend to be more accepting and acknowledging because it's almost like those differences don't fly under the radar. Mm. However, one thing I've noticed as well, and I've noticed this with a couple of friends, particularly um, when I traveled in Europe for a few months and I lived over there, and you know, a couple of people when they visited over here, friends of mine um, from Central Europe, is that there are two types of people when it comes to relating to different cultures, uh, especially when it's relating to a culture that they don't have that much experience with. There are the type of people that will say, these people are behaving in a particular situation very different to how I behave. So it's very interesting. Yes. And there are the other type of people who say, these people are behaving very differently to in a particular type of situation. So it's very strange. Mm. And there's a certain uh, a weighted attitude that is behind those two sentiments, where someone is coming from a place of curiosity and fascination. Yes. And someone else is, it has nothing to do with racism. I don't think that they're racist or discriminatory. But to them, it's a little bit more difficult to yes. just accept the fact that um, you know it's it doesn't come down to simple as right or wrong it's just that there are different ways of doing things different ways of looking at the world and maybe in some cases one way is more useful than another and I remember we spoke about this at your uh, last workshop that I was at but uh, you know and we talked about this in the context of parenting as well you know at which point do you determine that well you might have cultural values and you can't be judgmental about it but at some you point you can say yeah something is more useful than uh, something else. Yeah. I'm wondering what the motivation is or what kind of contributes to someone becoming either a person who says, oh yeah, that's very fascinating, it's very interesting how different this person is to me in this particular context, and how someone gets to a point of saying, this is very strange. Now, whether I deal with it or not is different, a matter altogether, but they lead with that perspective of, this is weird, this is strange, this is odd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is so key. When I talk about my work, we talked about it as cultural intelligence, and we said some other, other titles that you know I can have as an intercultural trainer or a coach. But really what I am doing is developing people's multicultural mindsets. And you're describing the curiosity and fascination of an open mind. Hmm. And you know the, the sort of energy drain that you have when you have a more of a closed mind or you're thinking hey this is too difficult which closes your mind yeah and and how to flick the switch for people you know nobody can do it but themselves but i tend to think about my work now not as conveying a model or you know there's lots of tools that i hope are helpful to people and experiences you can have and discussions you can have but really i am looking at the way that they express their mindset and when people find it difficult, and I guess you're asking what, you know, what makes people one way or the other, and you could also ask that about other fields, you know, where people come at it with a, you know, how interesting this is, I'm fascinated by it, let's see how this plays out, Yeah. versus, oh, this is just going to ask me for more. I guess there's the utilitarian sort of evaluation you make, which is, is this worth my time? Yes, it, it's more, it requires me to stop and think extra. It actually does ask you to add a few synapses in, in a way. <laughs> yeah, right. That's a good way <laughs> to put it. Yeah, it, it, it is a bit of an extra effort. So if I don't acknowledge that and I say, just have an open mind, it's, it's not really helping people who are actually experiencing challenges of cultural differences. Um, but it is sometimes it can help when people realize that there is a lot more joy to be had and a lot more richness to be you know, aware of and make choices from about what's useful. 
when you do have an open mind. I sometimes end my trainings by a quote from Rumi, you know, that Sufi poet yeah. from where, many, many centuries back. And he said, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. Let's meet there. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. Beautiful. Yeah, Rumi's so lovely. And I, I think, yep, that's, that's what we're after. How do you get there? Um, and for some people, when they are becoming aware of that, actually, it's a whole world out there that they've sort of missed out on, and now they can tap into it. They, they go, they, you know, they go their merry way. They, they're very happy with that. And they, they, they just need to realize that, and they can go forward. For other people, they might have had difficult experiences with cultural differences. Um, they might not deal well with uncertainty and ambiguity and change. So for them, there's a lot of self-management that goes into this. To even mindfulness, if you will, you know, to noticing your reaction and noticing a sensation, labeling it, and then not acting on it right away, but taking a deep breath, you know, figuratively or, or metaphorically or literally, and just saying, okay, so I'm not quite comfortable with this way that they're expressing themselves or acting in the situation. Hmm. <sighs> what would I like to do about this? What was so? So the utilitarian argument says what is most useful. Yeah. What comes to my mind is that, you know, you can read all the self-help books and personal development books out there, but yeah. there is really no substitute for certain life experiences that we have yeah. where we learn uh, to grow ourselves, where we learn personal development, such as, you know, a love, heartbreak, uh, grieving someone's death, or, um, you know, going through any sort of crossroads in your life, any difficult, whether it's professional or personal. And I think immersing yourself in the challenges of relating to different cultures and putting yourself in a position where you are actually going out of your way to uh, expand your mind, it is extremely uh, rich in uh, the value in terms of personal development, how mm -hmm. much it helps you grow. Because it's not just about immersing yourself in different cultures in order to increase your cultural intelligence, it's also probably influencing your uh, ability to be more patient, to be more open-minded, yeah. to yeah. be more self-aware, uh, all of these different things that will naturally have an impact in all other areas of your life that are not just boxed into this one category of multiculturalism. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I could, we could list, you know, some benefits that comes from expanding your mind, your world, your leadership capabilities in this way. And we are throughout our conversation. Yeah, um, yeah I, I find that fascinating too. And I think once people, sometimes people have a barrier towards opening themselves to different cultures because they don't feel, they don't feel comfortable, they think they're going to have to give up their culture and they don't want to be labeled as wrong. So taking them out of the right, wrong space, trying to, to be a bit more fascinated with it, the curiosity, I, I think that's key, what you highlighted. Yeah. And I think one little tip that I would add to that as well is that some people find it that it's something difficult. So, you know, coming again from that utilitarian perspective, it's going to take up a lot of energy. But I think maybe it doesn't have to. Maybe it no. doesn't have to be so difficult. You can, uh, it's okay to make mistakes as with any learning process. Yes. And if you take it slow and if you take it comfortably and you just put in a little bit of effort, it, there isn't that risk that you might grossly offend somebody. Because yeah. I think some people just run away because of that fear. Absolutely. That's another barrier. Like you said, the difficulty to making it more easy for people is one thing that I try to do. Hmm. But some people are really paranoid. Yeah. And, and it does show me that they care a lot. They don't want to offend. And they don't want to be feeling silly. None of us like that feeling of, you know, I made a mistake. Um, so one of the things I highlight very early on is that it's not about perfection. 
Hmm. You don't have to get everything right to be successful across cultures. You just have to keep connecting, keep trying, keep learning. And if we don't recognize the effects of culture in our daily life, we can make the same mistake 400 times and not be any wiser. Um, one of the things I found interesting, just an example that came to mind, I was working with a government agency that had uh, found that the lands that they managed were very well visited by people from Western Sydney who, and especially large families, and who would dress in a different way, speak different languages, and also have requirements for prayer. Uh, and, and their facilities, you know, for, because of the wadu, to wash before prayer, yep. um, they didn't, they weren't set up for that. And so they came to me and said, we have a real problem. People are splashing water all over the toilets. And in doing so, you know, their facilities become unsafe. And we also find that other visitors get put off. Ah, interesting. Yeah. It's very interesting. So they've noticed the effects of cultural, of a cultural practice. And they said, but on the other hand, you know, we would love to, to welcome people, to connect with people. We would love to, to educate about the use of, of this land, um, you know, connect people to nature. Maybe we could even get people, you know, walking and recognizing their new, you know, biological environment and dealing, dealing with the water in the appropriate way. So there were many opportunities, but there was that particular challenge. And so we talked about that and I said, do you have a place for worship? And they said, no, do we need, do we need to? I said, well, you know, that might be a good idea. If you want to stretch out a hand and build a relationship, um, you know, people need to pray. I think mm. it's five times a day. So, so there's, there's the sort of practical infrastructure stuff. So yeah. instead of doing what they've done now, which is to put up a note saying, please don't splash water all over the place. <laughs> um, you know, what about inviting people to dialogue? So I, as a cultural trainer, can come in and, and teach them a little bit about the practices, and better yet, I can get one of my Muslim colleagues to come in and teach them more about where the practices come from and what they mean. But the problem, you know, it's great, I get work, I'm a consultant, but the problem here is that they, in their team of 50 people who worked, none of them had the personal connections to help them tap in to what is a quite large group of people in multicultural Australia. So I said, you know, one of the things that you need to do is, yeah, yeah, I can give you lots of input here and info, and we can talk about how you build an environment that's more accommodating, and also how you connect when you are face-to-face, -face, um, and how you build these connections and a, a more, co more harmonious, you know, interaction. But really, for the long run, you need to get people on staff who understands this, and you need to build your own relationships. So I started connecting them to people who either had... Um, as part of the remit as an organization to educate about Islam and its many practices and, you know, in um, many expressions, or, or people who just generally were really good at connecting communities. Mm. Because that's the sustainability, that's the long run, you know, that's why we need to tap into to people around us and why, you know, this kind of, um, I guess, segregation that we might experience can be so harmful. Yeah, this in itself opens up a whole can of worms and a whole bunch of other questions that I could ask. But uh, unfortunately, we're uh, we're almost towards the end of time yeah. uh, here. <laughs> maybe maybe we'll have to uh, get you to come back and kind of break up into uh, some other topics to talk a little bit more uh, deeper into. And I'm always happy to talk about any topic. And then you know, Dave, if anybody wants to contact you uh, or me through you or you know find us around on the net um i'm happy to discuss any aspect of multiculturalism because i think you know we're always creating this together um, oh yeah of course every day and so what's right what's wrong what's good what's bad what's what's useful what's helpful is really the ultimate questions um so yeah it's a discussion yeah. worth having again and again but oh, I'm absolutely really yeah. and if pe people can find you directly as well right yeah they, they can. can go to your I, website they can which is uh, www.prismagroup. So Prisma is 
P-R-I-S-M-A, group.com.au. And my company name is Prisma. It's like prism with an yeah. A in the end, which is the word in many other languages, because I believe that culture um, impacts our worldview. And if we can understand cult many cultural perspectives, we can see the world in more colors. You know, we can get a much fuller view of the world, a much richer view of the world. So that's why I chose that name. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful metaphor and it's amazing work that you do. And I'll, I'll make sure I add that link to the show notes as well. Uh, before we do wrap up, uh, Lotta, I want to ask you uh, two particular questions. And one of them is a question that I ask um, everybody on the show, uh, except I think, <laughs> I think on the last episode, I actually forgot to ask this question, very sadly, but I try. Um, but there's a question that I want to ask before that. And it goes back to this idea of, um, of breaking that barrier between uh, passive interest in this idea of cultural intelligence, uh, as if you were watching a fascinating documentary and actually immersing yourself into it to take action. So mm. my question around that is for the average uh, Joe person listening to this, the average bloke or the average um, average girl who's listening to this and is, you know, this might be their first exposure or experience to this idea even of cultural intelligence. What are some things that you can tell them to do, practically mm. speaking, if they are asking the question, well, this is all really fascinating and interesting, and you've got me intrigued to um, to actually use this idea of cultural intelligence to start optimizing my uh, business or leadership or various areas of my life. What can I do to actually start that optimization? Fabulous, yes, optimizing your interactions across cultures as well as you know enriching your life. Yeah. I think we have covered or briefly just rattled off a couple of questions that are useful for, pe for people in daily life. I think if we can come in to interactions and notice three things, which is what is culturally different here, why might it matter, and if I see a difference and I think it might have some kind of impact, even curiosity or fascination is an impact, how hmm. can I connect across cultures here? So if you go into interactions with people, because really that's where, you know, culture is most often at in its most yeah. dynamic form, and you keep that open mind going, ah, I see someone acting this way, talking this way, going about their life in this way, ah, well, what is that? I wonder why. You can ask the question inside your head. If you have a strong relationship with the person, you can ask it to them. You can't necessarily walk up and tap someone on the shoulder and say, I see you're dressing this way. Tell me why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I am all for seeking out new knowledge, but obviously we have to be a bit sensitive about it. But you can always ask yourself, I wonder, what, what is the cultural difference here? Where, where does it come from? What is this? So that curiosity. And if you do that, and if you find that you can connect with people around it, you will be all the richer for it. And it will make a difference to you in the long run, if not immediately. And it will make a difference to our society. Because it's just like in the brain with our synapses. Our society also is held together with a thousand little threads, a million little threads, invisible ones, um, between people in interactions. And the more of those interactions that go well, that lead to increased connections between us, the better we are off, all of us, for it. So, so it happens in your brain and it happens outside in society. So if you keep that curiosity and you keep your radar, switch your radar onto cultural differences, you know, just see what it lead, where it leads to. And I think you'll find that it'll help you and it'll be a fascinating path. 
That's that's really wonderful. And I'll just add to that very, very briefly Please is do. that sometimes you might see someone who is dressed a little bit differently. And uh, as, as I often am, obviously, because, uh, you know, I come from a Sikh heritage. I'm sure you've seen my photo if you're listening to this. And obviously, you know me uh, personally, Lotta. Yes. And I, I wear a turban. I have a beard. And so in my life, um, you know, I've had a few experiences of people coming up to me and with great uh, sensitivity and respect, just asking out of curiosity, uh, you know, what's the deal? What What, what is that? And, you know, I've, I've had moments of being bullied and, uh, you know, people shouting from cars, racist slurs, and I've uh, been beaten up a couple of times as well. But oh. I still remember uh, more consciously the experiences of people coming up to me with great respect and just asking, uh, you know, can, can you please uh, explain to me what, what it is because I'm genuinely curious. And I'm more than happy to. And I know most people um, who do come from that place of uh, looking very different. They are very happy to talk about it. It's actually it's actually a nice thing. So it's wonderful. Can I just add a tiny bit to that then? Yeah, and say sure. Not only is it uh, a curiosity in the radar, but it is that generosity of sharing about you and your culture. Yeah, absolutely. Because people can't know this. People don't know what they don't know, and and we can't know things if we haven't lived the experience. So the more we share generously about yourself, and you've done that today, and you did that the first day I met you, and when you did, and when you do now, I'm sure as well. People just come away a little bit more knowledgeable and a little bit more comfortable and maybe mm. a little bit more curious. And that's really what we're after. And, and a lot more connected, I would exactly. say. Exactly. The sea that matters. Yeah. That's <laughs> thank right. You, no, thank you, Lala. And so my last question, which I try and ask every guest, except that one time that I forgot, mm-hmm. <laughs> was um, in your life in general, overall, this doesn't have to be about cultural intelligence. What have you learned that um, you would say are your top three tips for anyone listening to this uh, who wants to optimize their business leadership in life? Mm. I think stay solutions focused might sound a little bit you know, rational, but really go, go to where the light is. Um, so that's my number one. Yeah, there are problems everywhere. If you focus on them, they will take up the most space. And like Einstein said, we cannot solve problems with the same mindset that created them. So let's go towards the solutions. That's my number one. Oh, and my number two and three, I reckon um, it's about optimizing your life. When you can, connect, build a relationship. I am a raving extrovert, so I would say that. But I think, you know, if you have a, if you have a choice between, you know, um, having a positive interaction and one that is neutral or negative, just, just try to make it positive. It, it one. One time, rather, it'll make a world of difference, and the other times, you'll just enjoy having more fun. And the last one is, of course, related to cultural intelligence, and it is go experience the world. I mean, we can experience it in a microcosm of loving someone with a different culture, of being friends with someone, of building a strong working relationship with someone, of even seeking out the world where we live. It's not that hard, especially if you're from multicultural Sydney. Um, so do that. And if you can, then go further afield because there's just so much to explore. And I did. And I wasn't brought up like that. I just did it by my own volition um, when I was 20. And, you know, my life changed. And I've gotten to experience so much of the world. And I'm hoping to experience a lot more of it. Um, and it, it's just one big adventure to me. So I, I wish that for other people, however they like to do it and however they're able to do it. That's absolutely beautiful. Lotta, thank you so much. It's been it's been a really, really good conversation. Um, I've loved the pace of it. I've loved the content. Uh, I know people are going to get a lot out of this. And I myself am really excited to go back and listen to it all over again. 
How good. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure for me. Lovely to talk to you as always. You always add so many new thoughts. And I hope for all of you listening too that it was that it was useful, interesting, and uh, look forward to hearing from anybody who is curious. Yeah, absolutely. Thank okay. you. Thanks, Lada. Speak Thanks to you soon. Thanks so much, Dave. If you enjoyed this episode of the Life Optimized Show, please go to iTunes and leave a review. And whatever you do, don't keep the episode to yourself. Make sure you go and share it with your friends and networks. Until next time, I'm Dave Singh.